Uh, thanks for deciding to be with us today. We are in the middle of a series uh, titled The Good Life, a study on the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes are eight powerful counterintuitive statements that Jesus makes as the prologue to the most famous sermon Jesus ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. In Jesus' sermon, one might expect that Jesus would lift up and bless the exceptional people, the best examples of humankind, but Jesus chooses to bless those who are not the spiritual giants, but those that are poor in spirit, those who, spiritually speaking, have absolutely nothing to give and absolutely everything to receive. We might expect Jesus to bless those who are always upbeat, those who don't let things get them down and continue to press forward, but Jesus chooses to bless those who mourn over their own brokenness and the brokenness of this world. We might expect Jesus to bless those who have influence and power and privilege, but Jesus chooses to bless those who are meek and gentle. There's one thing I want to be sure you understand is that these eight beautiful statements are not the life you live in order for God to love you, they are the way you are to be because God loves you. Please get that. That, that. that is key to understand all of the Beatitudes. This is not the life you should live if you want God to love you. They are who you are to be because God loves you. The point of each Beatitude is not to make you feel guilty and inadequate, but rather to give us a portrait of a life shaped by Holy Spirit a vision of the good life in the kingdom of God in communion with the King Jesus. We're on the fourth beatitude this morning, and it's the beginning of a turning point in the beatitudes. There's a definite order to the beatitudes. The first three are passive. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Each of these are the emptying of self and the knowledge and acknowledgement of our own need. In the first three Beatitudes, Jesus is driving us into ourselves. The fourth is the beginning of driving us out of ourselves and the subsequent filling us up of good things like righteousness, mercy, purity, and peace. See, this is the fundamental need of the human heart. It is the primary rhythm of the Christian life. First, to see our own need and our emptiness, then to have God meet us and fill us up, and then we get out of ourselves, we stop focusing on ourselves, and we love and serve others. I've encouraged you, uh, since we started this, to uh, accept the challenge, if you will, to memorize these eight Beatitudes, these eight statements, that we might meditate on them, that we might commit them to, to thought and to heart so that they would become our way of life. And so if you are able, I'm going to ask you to stand as we read Matthew 5, 1 through 6, together this morning. This is God's word to us. Seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Isaiah tells us that the grass withers, the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Now let's pray together. God, I ask that you would speak to us this morning. God, you know where each and every person is. You know the thoughts going through our head. You know 
the emotions in our hearts, you know, our lives lived this past week. And I pray that the Word of God would accomplish its purpose, that it would divide rightly our thoughts and our hearts and our lives, that you would lead us to truth, and not just abstract truth, but the truth of you, God, a personal God who meets us and wants to transform us this morning. Pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you. Jesus, speak to us, we pray, by your Spirit. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Deeply happy, approved of by God, are those who hunger and thirst. Jesus is preaching to first century Palestinians who were one dry season away from famine and dehydration. They understood very well this phrase, to hunger and thirst. They were physically hungry and thirsty. For those of you who have or are worried about where your next meal might come from or for the many in our city that are concerned about where their next meal might come from, understanding Jesus' words here comes extremely naturally to, to you. But for me, uh, in, honest, in honesty and for many of you, there's never been a day where we've worried that we may not, we may not fill our stomach with food. If there's a little rumbling in our belly, we eat. And so let me try to expound on what it means to hunger and thirst in a way that we can understand. Uh, one of the favorite Mason songs uh, over the past month or so is from the play Hamilton. We've actually been listening to the soundtrack on repeat over and over, and the song is titled My Shot. Alexander Hamilton is singing about his vision for himself in this new land of opportunity, and he sings, I'm not throwing away my shot. But just like this country, I'm young, scrappy, and hungry, and I'm not throwing away my shot, right? He's hungry. Alexander Hamilton, like his country, is hungry, meaning he's ambitious. He's driven. He has an intense desire. We use this word hungry today to explain a very intense passion, a drive for something. It's used to describe an athlete. Athletes hungry for success, or a, a new employee at work is hungry to perform well, or an entrepreneur is hungry for their startup to succeed. It, it means someone is after something. They're pursuing something with great intensity. We could translate hungry as starving, starving for something, or even better, a deep ache for something. The question for us is what are we starving for? What are we aching for? What do you lie in bed at night thinking about? What do you daydream about? What do you wake up in the morning thinking about? Let me help you answer this question of what you might be aching for. Go home after this service, not during the service, after the service, and I want you to look at three things. I want you to look at your money trail. Look at where you tend to spend your money or how aggressively you save or invest your money. How we treat our money reveals where we think the good life is and what the good life is all about. Money follows the aching and longing of our heart. Second thing, look at your internet browser. What internet sites are you consistently looking at? Are they sites concerning your money or the economy? Are they sites about your favorite sports team or the next vacation and travel experience or about 
a real estate opportunity or about a potential new job or some sites about parenting your children? What have you been looking at on the Internet? If you have Instagram, I realize not all of you have Instagram, but go home after this and open up your Instagram account. Click on the search icon, the magnifying glass. Instagram has been storing away all the things you look at, and they will suggest to you people or things to follow. So does Instagram suggest that you follow the latest home remodeler, the latest workout guru, the latest thought leader, the latest blogging mother or father who parents with effortless perfection, a potential guy or girl to objectify, or even a potential person to date? See, the Internet and Instagram looks back at us, and they have been reading and understanding what it is we are hungering for, and then they try to feed it back to us. But these things always leave us unsatisfied and unfulfilled. Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be satisfied. Deeply happy are those who ache for righteousness. They will be fulfilled. So what does righteousness mean? It means rightness. Rightness. Things are made right that they are the way they ought to be. Sinclair Ferguson says that it means conformity to a norm, conformity to the way things ought to be. According to the Bible, righteousness, rightness, has three different meanings, all of them very important if we want to understand fully what Jesus is proclaiming in this beatitude. In fact, I will say a misunderstanding of the fullness of this word righteousness leads and has led to great danger. Three meanings of righteousness in the Bible. Legal righteousness, moral righteousness, and social righteousness. Or we could say the way the Bible talks about righteousness in the Bible is our right standing, our right living, and a right world. Right standing, right living, right world. So let's talk about each of these together. First, right standing or our legal righteousness. I, I love how David Zoll, uh, in his new book, Seculosity, uh, which is a summer reading suggestion this, this summer, uh, if you want to pick it up. There are a few left at the table or you can order it. I love how Zoll defines this type of righteousness. He defines it as enoughness enoughness, that everybody aches to feel enough, successful enough, happy enough, thin enough, wealthy enough, influential enough, desired enough, charitable enough, woke enough, good enough. And we all think if we reach some benchmark in our minds, then we'll be valued, vindicated, loved that if we get enough, we will be enough. And this hunger to be enough, it's exhausting. It does not satisfy. As the famous John D. Rockefeller was once asked, how much money is enough? He said, just a little bit more. It is a tireless pursuit, be it hungering after success, romance, perfect children, political influence, appearance, money. We will always want more, and it leaves us unsatisfied. Moral psychologist Jonathan Haidt writes in his book, The Righteous Mind, 
that an obsession with righteousness is the normal human condition. Heights getting at the fact that an obsession with some form of righteousness, enoughness, is not something akin to Christianity or religion, but it's something foundational to what it means to be human, that we all pursue it. Christianity and the gospel of Jesus Christ declares that our right standing, our enoughness, is something that is given to us. It's not something we earn or work for. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, He, Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. By faith in Jesus, we are given the righteousness of God. We are made right in our relationship with God. By faith in Christ, our sins are forgiven and we are given the perfect obedience of Jesus. We are given the standing as sons and daughters of God. You know the most used phrase in the New Testament describing the Christian? In Christ. In Christ. That's positional. That's our standing before God. We are in Christ. So when the Father sees us, he sees Jesus. We are enough because Jesus is enough. Does your heart ache to understand this truth more and more? Do you understand your own need? And then do you let God meet you and fill you with the truth of your forgiveness, the truth of your adoption as a child of God? And do you ache to hear the Father declare over you, you are enough? Jesus, in relationship with him, not only gives us right standing with God, the Spirit of Jesus works in us so that we might ache and hunger for right living. This is the second point, right living or moral righteousness. Now, I hope you catch this. Whatever you pursue for your rightness, whatever you determine to be the norm, the authority that you seek to conform to, it will become the law that you live by so that you feel right and then you will demand of others this same rightness. It becomes your moral compass of right and wrong. And it will come out toward others in your relationship with them. It will come out in how you live. Now more than ever, we live in a culture obsessed with being right. And then demanding and telling other people what is right for them. And we have outlets like social media and neighborhood listservs to hammer people with our law, our norm, and demand that they conform to our view of rightness. I've lived in two differing neighborhoods in downtown Durham over the last seven years. Both of these listservs were primarily used to tell other people what they should be and what they should do. Most of the posters on the listservs would not consider themselves religious, not Christian. But I have to tell you that their posts of what is right or wrong in being a good neighbor or caring for the environment or what the political policy they should hold to is their way of living righteous and then demanding others to be righteous just like them. The reality, though, is that everybody has a norm. We all do. For the Christian, our norm is God's law. 
For us, the ultimate compass of right and wrong is laid out for us in the Scriptures. And by faith in Christ, we're not only declared righteous in our standing before God, but we have now been given power to live righteously. We have the power of the living God living in us by Holy Spirit to live in conformity to God's ways. That's what Paul writes about in Romans chapter 5, 20 to 21. He says, now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, through our right living, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. See, the Christian deeply aches to know and experience God's love and forgiveness and deeply aches to live out the Christian life of faithfulness to God. If we are not aching to live according to God's ways in regards to our money, our sexuality, our relationships, our marriage, our time, just to name a few, we have to question the validity of relationship with God. Now, I'm not saying that we live perfectly far from it. We've got to remember the first three Beatitudes, poverty of spirit, mourning, meekness. We continually see our need. We continually fall short of living righteously. But if there is no hunger, if there is no passion, no godly ambition to become more like Jesus in the way you live day in and day out, if Jesus is merely your Savior and not your King in which your whole life is submitted unto him, you have to question the authenticity of the relationship. Blessed are those who hunger, starve, ache to live righteously. Right standing, right living. The last way the Bible uses this word righteous is a right world. Deeply happy are those who ache for the world to be made right. They will be fulfilled. This is social righteousness, a right world. The Greek word for righteousness in the New Testament is diakosune. Diakosune, and this word is translated righteous and justice in English. Diakosune can be translated both righteous and righteousness and justice. So to hunger and thirst for righteousness is to ache and starve for justice. Just like the Old Testament prophet Amos wrote, we ache for justice to roll down like mighty waters. If we're not concerned with injustices and oppressions that individuals endure, and if we're not concerned with the systems that perpetrate injustice and oppression, we are not understanding the fullness of this word righteousness and the fullness of God's kingdom. Jesus' kingdom is about justice. Now, some of you are getting nervous. All right, this is starting to sound a little political. Like you talking about personal forgiveness, I'm, I'm okay a little bit with you dabbling in how I live my life, but don't get too political. Here's a question for you. Do you know what got Jesus crucified? Why was Jesus hung on a cross? yes for our sin and for salvation, but in real time, what got him killed? He was crucified because he declared he was the king of a kingdom. 
he declared that he was about organizing humanity underneath a whole new world order, his rule, his reign, and that got him killed. That's why they hung the sign above his head, Hail King of the Jews. Caesar was ruling, the Sanhedrin were were ruling, and they did not like this Jesus challenging their rule and their reign, their politic, so they killed him. Jesus and his kingdom are political, but not in the way that we think. Jesus isn't Republican, and he's not Democrat, not red or blue, donkey or elephant. Jesus is not concerned about endorsing your political opinion. He's deeply concerned that we take our opinions and we lay them alongside his politic, his kingdom rule and reign, seen in the Sermon on the Mount and throughout the Scriptures. Jesus, in what he declares is a right and just world, causes tension with both the conservative-leaning and liberal-leaning in our country. In Jesus' kingdom, Jesus cares about the unborn child and the poor, the orphan, and the immigrant. He cares about systems and, yes, even policies that oppress. But Jesus and his kingdom cannot be co-opted by the political left or right because Jesus is not about one or the other. He's about a whole different way, his way, his kingdom. Listen to the Old Testament prophet Malachi if you're not buying what I'm telling you. This is the last prophet of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 3, verse 5, this is speaking about what kind of things the Messiah King would care about when he brings his kingdom, when he brings his rule and his reign. And this is what Malachi 3, 5 says, Then I will draw near to you for judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, people with a jacked-up spirituality, and against the adulterers, people with a jacked-up sexuality, against those who swear falsely, people with a jacked-up morality. See, Jesus cares about our standing before God. Jesus cares about our theology and our doctrine. He cares how we live in relationship to him in this world. But Malachi continues, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, economic equity, those who take advantage of the widow, the fatherless, the orphan, those who thrust aside the sojourner, the immigrant among you. Jesus cares also about how we treat our employees and fellow workers and how we care for the immigrant and the orphan among us. For the kingdom of God is one of justice. So do you ache for the world to be made right, for justice to roll down like mighty waters? Now, the other summer suggested reading book this summer is The Color of Compromise. Uh, I didn't plan to have both of these in my sermon. It just happened. Uh, But this is the other book, The Color of Compromise by Jamar Tisby. Jamar is a friend, and I've read a good bit of his articles and his work. I have not read this book yet, but I do know what it's about. It's about the church and explicitly the southern church being not only complicit but an instrument of racism and segregation within our country. And so the question is, how does that happen? How does... The Christian church, those who understand right standing and right living, turn a blind eye to a right world. It happens as the Christian church thinks that there's no role for the Christian in the church to play in our world. It happens when we believe that Jesus only cares about personal piety and not about social righteousness. It happens by believing that there's nothing for us to do but wait until Jesus comes back. 
But Jesus, later on in the Sermon on the Mount, teaches his people how to pray. Thy kingdom come, thy will, thy rule and reign, thy government, O God, come to earth right now as it is in heaven. And there are many injustices in our city, in our world, that we can all gloss over and pass if we allow ourselves. Let me just name a few. Poverty, sex trafficking, education inequity, health needs, job training, affordable housing, adoption and and foster care. Just a few. Let me say something that I voiced to someone as I was hanging out with them on Monday night. When we speak about justice in our world, each of you cannot be passionate and committed to pursuing justice in every sphere. If you're passionate about everything, you'll engage in nothing. So let me challenge you to pray and consider what areas of injustice you get really fired up for. What has God burdened your heart for? What might you ache for and then invest in? You can't do everything. This is a a matter of calling, but Christ central. He's called us to justice. And what if we were a church full of people who ached for justice in every sphere of life? I really believe we would see God's rule and reign coming to Durham as it is in heaven. But please know this. Your pursuit of justice is not your rightness. It's not what makes you enough. If you think it does, you misunderstand the fullness of this word righteousness. Your pursuit of justice in your particular areas, it will become Uh, that thing that you think gives you right standing before God, it will become the norm and the law that, that tells you how to live, and then you will demand others to live accordingly. We have to always come back to Jesus and the righteousness that he gives us by his life, death, and resurrection, the power that we have now living in us by the Spirit of Jesus to live according to the Bible, and then we turn out and we pursue a right and just world. Let me finish by saying this. In large part, you are what you eat. What you feed your hunger with is what you become. You eat junk food, you're going to crave junk food. You eat healthy food, you'll crave healthy food. This happens for me every now and then. If you set your mind and heart on sexuality, on success and power, on pleasure and comfort, on your personal politic, on on your perfect family or on the perfect person to marry, this is what you will hunger and thirst for. I'm telling you something you instinctively know already, which is we can shape our appetites. It's called habit. So may I and may you feast on, delight in, and ache to experience just how high and wide and deep is the love of Jesus that declares to us, enough, you're enough. And may we feast on an ache for our lives to be lived in conformity to his word. And may we feast and ache for our world to be a world of justice. For when we hunger and thirst for righteousness, we will be satisfied. This is the good life. Let's pray. Lord God, I, I pray that you would recast our vision Help our imaginations, our minds, and our hearts to be captivated by what 
it means to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Fill us, God, our emptiness, our nothingness. Fill us with yourself, with your presence, with your love and grace and mercy. And then turn us out to love this world, to serve this world, that we might see the kingdom of God come to earth as it is in heaven. So in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.